You are listening to Policy Unplugged, a VIC radio production. Welcome back to Policy Unplugged. I'm your host, Alyssa Spady. In the second episode, we'll be taking a look at the sweeping ethics and election bill that was passed in the House last Wednesday. H.R. 1, or the For the People Act, was introduced back in the beginning of January by Representative Sarbanes of Maryland. If passed, this bill will bring the biggest changes to the U.S. electoral system in a generation. The bill is broken down into three main parts, voting, ethics, and campaign finances. Within each part, there are major proposals to fix partisan gerrymandering, eliminating hurdles to voting, which could mean the limiting of voter ID laws, and increased transparency in the murky world of campaign finance. As we mentioned before, the bill was introduced by, and is mostly supported by, Democrats. According to CNN, Democrats are describing it as an anti-corruption legislation that would make voting more accessible and Washington more transparent with increased accountability. Republicans, on the other hand, argue that the bill will do nothing but limit political speech and is just another case of overreach by the federal government. Even with incredible Republican pushback, the bill passed last Wednesday mostly on party lines, 220 to 210. Since the 2020 presidential election, there has been mass disinformation being spread by the former president, as well as many Republican politicians, that the election had been fraudulent, meaning that the current president was somehow elected in an illegal form. In response to these claims, many states have begun to ramp up their voting laws, making them more restrictive than before. According to the Brennan Center for Justice at New York University, since February of this year, 43 states have introduced over 250 restrictive voting provisions. Most of these provisions are about increasing voter ID laws or restricting absentee ballot access. But the startling increase in state voting provisions is alarming to members of Congress as the 2022 midterm elections draw near and redrawing legislative districts come up soon. All of these measures will shape how states vote in the future and can be particularly detrimental to younger voters as well as people of color. But before we get into the bill, let's take some time to define, understand, and also dispel some common things surrounding elections, voting, and campaign finances. First is the myth that spread like wildfire throughout the U.S. after the last election, and that is that there was mass voter fraud or election fraud. To begin, let's get one solid fact down, and that's that voter fraud is incredibly rare in the U.S. According to FEC data, there were 31 incidents from 2000 to 2014. This is 31 incidents out of 1 billion ballots cast in general and primary elections. The only legal way to possibly change who is voting in elections is by passing things like voter ID laws, decreasing polling places, and gerrymandering. Which brings us to our next clarification. Gerrymandering is when legislative district lines are manipulated so that one party is heavily favored. It has been a problem that has plagued the U.S. since the early 1800s. The first case that is known by historians was from 1812 and involved the District of South Essex. It was created by the Massachusetts legislature to favor the Democratic-Republican Party. From there on, it has only gotten worse. Some districts cut through others and can span from one side of the state to the other. In June of 2019, the Supreme Court ruled 5-4 to four that partisan redistricting, or gerrymandering, is a political question that cannot be answered by the federal courts. So simply put, 
the courts can't determine whether or not gerrymandering cases violate the Constitution. The third element that we will work through are voter ID laws. Currently, there are only 16 states that do not require voters to have some form of necessary identification in order to vote. Voter ID laws in general are incredibly discriminatory. According to a Brennan Center study, 11% of citizens lack a form of ID, which amounts to 21 million Americans that do not have a government-issued photo ID, which means 21 million Americans that aren't able to vote in some states. For African Americans, this hits harder. In that same study, 25% of black citizens of voting age lack government-issued photo ID compared to just 8% of whites. In other states, some forms of ID are accepted while others aren't. For example, in Texas, concealed weapons permits are accepted as a form of ID, but student ID cards are not. Now, many people will hear what I just laid out and said, well, why can't they just go out and get an ID? It's not that simple. Getting an ID can cost money, and even in states where it doesn't, there is still the necessity to have identification documents, like a birth certificate, that can cost money to obtain if that person does not have it. Aside from that, there's also the issue of taking time out of one's day to go down to the DMV and perhaps wait online for hours. I don't know about any of you, but for me, going to the DMV is a full day event that requires me to shell out at least two to four hours of time. For people who work jobs that can't just take off time during the day, this decreases their chances of going to get an ID. The final part of all this is that you need a way to get to the DMV, which means you're either driving yourself, which also uses gas and costs money, or you're taking public transportation, which also requires the payment of a fare. The final element of all this is the very sketchy and murky world of campaign finances. During election cycles, words like PACs and super PACs are always thrown around with little to no explanation for them. Political action committees are organized groups who represent various business, labor, or ideological interests across the nation. They've been around since 1944, and the first case of a PAC was when the Congress of Industrial Organizations formed and raised money for President Franklin D. Roosevelt's re-election. During that time, PAC money mostly came from union members. Currently, PACs are able to donate up to $5,000 to a candidate per election. That can be in a primary, general, or special election. They can also give up to $15,000 to any national party committee. In terms of what donations PACs can receive, PACs are able to receive up to $5,000 from any one individual, other PAC, or party committee every year. PACs are vital to a candidate's election run, not just financially, but also they can help garner more support for that candidate. Some of the biggest PACs from 2020 were the National Association of Realtors, the National Beer Wholesalers Association, AT&T, and the Honeywell International Group. Super PACs, on the other hand, make no contributions to candidates or parties. Instead, they make independent spending efforts in federal races by running ads or sending mail to voters in specific areas. There are no limits or restrictions on the sources of funds that can be used. Some of the biggest super PACs from 2020 were the Senate Leadership Fund, Congressional Leadership Fund, America First Action, and the Preserve America PAC. In a 2010 ruling, the Supreme Court loosened restrictions on political spending. Since then, campaign financing has become this dark, confusing part of politics. Essentially now, money can buy power, and this helps candidates get into elections and stay in the national spotlight. After the break, we're going to go back into the For the People Act and discuss what it could mean for the nation as a whole, as well as Ithaca College students and the broader Ithaca community.
Now that you have all that background information, let's go back to the For the People Act and take a look at what it could mean. First, the bill would allow for automatic voter registration across the country. Voters would be able to opt out rather than having to opt in, which means more people will be signed up to vote. If the bill is passed, chief state election officials will have to automatically register eligible voters. Along with this, each state will be required to put online options for voter registration, correction of name or address, canceling one's voter registration, or designating one's party affiliation. It would also restore the voting rights to formerly convicted persons who have completed their sentence. However, for those still serving a sentence, there is no option for them to vote from jail. This last election cycle showed the importance and the necessity of having a strong early voting and mail-in voting system. The For the People Act will require at least 15 consecutive days of early voting in federal elections, and these sites will be required to remain open for at least 10 hours each day. It also prohibits a state's ability to restrict access to vote by mail and has states prepay postage on return envelopes. In terms of partisan gerrymandering, an independent redistricting commission will be set up in each state to draw new congressional lines without the backdoor partisan politics, ensuring that federal elections are fairer in the future. For campaign financing, it'll establish public financing of campaigns. This would mean that the federal government would provide a voluntary match for candidates in presidential and congressional races. So for every dollar that a candidate raises from small donations, the federal government would match it six times the original amount. The max small donation amount would cap off at $200. There would also be the introduction of a constitutional amendment that would help to end the ruling from the Citizens United case. It would also require that super PACs and other political organizations make their donors public. And along with this, it would prohibit any coordination between candidates and super PACs. The Federal Election Commission would have five commissioners instead of the current six to prevent partisan gridlock. And it would make social media giants like Facebook and Twitter disclose their sources of money for political ads on their platforms. Finally, the bill sets out a new ethics standard, beginning with the requirement that presidents and vice presidents release the past 10 years of their tax returns. Candidates for these positions will also have to do the same. Members of Congress would be prohibited from using taxpayer money to settle sexual harassment or other discrimination cases. And it also increases the power of the Office of Government Ethics so that they can implement stricter lobbying registration requirements and also have increased insight over foreign agents. Overall, this bill creates a freer and fairer election system in the U.S., something that has been an issue in the past two general election cycles. There is evidence that this is a bill that many Americans do support. However, for Republican senators, the story is different. In the last Congress, a similar bill was passed by the House but never made it to the Senate floor after then-Senate Majority Leader McConnell refused to put it on the schedule. Now, the bill might make it onto the schedule, but it could face either a filibuster or just simply not pass due to the split power in the Senate. In order for it to pass, 10 Republicans will mean to sign on, which means a very uphill battle for Democrats. In order to avoid a filibuster, Democrats would have to either find a way to lower the threshold, to break the filibuster, or create a workaround that would prioritize the legislation. This brings us to the end of Episode 2 of Policy Unplugged. Thanks for tuning in, and as always, don't forget to tweet at us with questions or ideas for our next podcast. Don't forget to tune in next week when we cover another hot topic from Capitol Hill. And as always, encourage your friends to listen to Policy Unplugged so that you all can debate politics using facts not fiction. With Policy Unplugged, I'm your host, Alyssa Spady.